0: Turn if you would to Mark chapter one. This is Micah, he lives in Colorado, he's grandson number one. Uh, Teresa flew up on uh, <laughs> Teresa flew up to Colorado on Wednesday and brought him back on Thursday, so sometime this week his parents are going to show up. So we hope. Okay, you're <laughs> off. Go that way. <laughs> We've uh, had a house full of grandkids for the last week and a half. Uh, Last weekend, my daughter and her husband were in Mexico, so we had their one-year-old for five days, and that ended Wednesday, and along with that, we had the two local ones for three days this week. So at one time, we had, well, most of the week, we had three kids running around the house. Now we're down to just one although we had three of them last night, so go figure. Last week, we started the book of Mark. Uh, We did an overview of the whole Bible in order to get the context for the book of Mark. I did have one question after class. I had mentioned when we worked through the overview that Moses had written Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy and somebody and I made the comment that Jesus endorsed the fact that Moses had written those and sure enough if you go looking in the gospels numerous numerous times Jesus says go to what Moses told you to do and at one point the Pharisees who are attacking him say Moses wrote that we should do such and such what do you think So, Jesus certainly endorsed the fact that Moses wrote the first five books. Now, if you're a contemporary biblical scholar, you may question that just like you may question who wrote any of the books of the Bible. Among secular biblical scholars, does that make any sense at all? I've listened to some of these people. So there are such things as secular biblical scholars. The current theory that they hold is that the first five books of the Bible were actually a collection written by at least three different people. And then a fourth person took those three and merged them all together. And it's interesting because they have a very complicated structure by which they divide up the first five books. They know, they claim they know, which of these three people wrote which passages in the first five books. It's kind of odd, okay? They also believe it was written much later, like much later. Somebody took these sources and kind of compiled them much later in the history of Israel, I don't believe that. I believe that God spoke to humans and inspired them to write the scripture to be the word that he wants to transmit to us as human beings. The scripture is authoritative in our lives, and we're actually going to talk about that in just a moment. So, starting in the book of Mark, we're going to Start reading at verse one because we didn't make it very far last week. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is writing to a Roman audience and he is going to try to present to them that Jesus is the Son of God. So he says that in the first verse. We're going to see that a couple more times in today's lesson. And all through the book is his discussion about why Jesus is the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance For the forgiveness of sins, and all the community of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. That's how far we made it last week. John is John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. This is not the John that wrote the book of John. That actually confuses some people, so let's be very clear. John, who wrote the book of John, is the Apostle John who Jesus is going to call to be one of his disciples. John, the prophet, John the baptizer, has been sent by God to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. We mentioned last week that he is probably the last Old Testament prophet. Remember... We get to the end of the Old Testament. There's a 400-year gap, and then John the Baptist shows up telling the people to repent. Now, there had been false prophets. There had been people showing up saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm ready. Follow me. They were all false prophets. John shows up to prepare the way. So let's pick up for today's lesson. Now, John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. When I was studying this, I wrote down, why should I care about any of this? I mean, the guy is eating cicadas. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is if you go back to the Old Testament dietary laws, you know, there's very strict rules about what they can and can't eat. Locusts are specifically mentioned as something you can eat. Can. Can eat. Why would it say that? Were the people just dying to eat locusts? I mean, you can't eat filet mignon, but you can eat locusts? Go figure. Hmm? What? What? It tastes like chicken. I don't know if you remember. I'm getting distracted. I don't know if you remember there was an old horse movie. I had kids that liked horse movies called Hidalgo about a guy from the West who ran a race in the Arabian Desert. And at some point, this swarm of locusts comes through, and he picks one up, and he bites it, and he says, well, it's not too bad once you get past the head. I just remember that line when I think of this passage. For some reason. What this is telling us is that there is the center of religious power in Jerusalem. There are these well-dressed priests. There are these well-dressed scribes. There are these well-dressed Pharisees who are the religious leaders of the time. They are what are controlling and teaching the people and out there is a crazy guy eating locusts. He's wearing skins, he's got a belt, and while he's out there, the people are coming out to him. Why would they do that? Because they're hungry to hear the truth. They're hungry to hear that there is a hope, that there is a Messiah coming. Now, Once again, when we work our way through this book, we're going to have a long discussion about the fact that what the people envisioned the Messiah as doing is radically different than what Jesus is actually going to do. They're looking for somebody to drive the Romans out of their community. What Jesus is coming to do is save the people from their sin. So... We have this radical disconnect, but they're all hungry to hear something. So they are going out to this crazy guy who is preaching to the people. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Remember, John only has one job, and that is to prepare the way for the Messiah. That's his job. It is not to be about John. He has this great statement later when somebody comments to him, you know, people are leaving you to go follow Jesus. And he says, I must decrease so that he can increase. Now, just to give you a heads up, that's real hard for us as human beings to do. That is real hard for us with our fragile egos to even contemplate that somebody would be greater than me. But John only has one job. And he knows what that job is. It is to prepare the way for someone who is coming. And John understands that in the hierarchy of the universe, there's John and there's Jesus. And he's okay with that. The question that I have to ask myself is, am I okay with that? You know, sometimes we get this idea that there's Jesus and there's me and we're best buds and we're going down the road and Jesus is here to help me do my thing in life. No. What is the book of Mark trying to teach us? Jesus is the Son of God. And guess what? You're not. Now, We have become sons. We have become daughters because of our relationship with Christ. Get to the book of Romans, and it talks about us being in Christ. So what Christ has, we inherit, but we are not God. And we need to remind ourselves of that. I think it's just been fascinating. This is just weird to me, okay? it shouldn't be. We've had our three-year-old. Numerous times, one of his cousins is playing with a toy and he wants it. And I said, no, he's playing with it. And he says, but I want it. As if somehow that's the definitive statement around which the universe should, I want John understood his mission, and it wasn't about what John wanted. Let's face it. You don't see a lot of people lining up to eat locusts and wild honey. The wild honey would probably be okay if you had some good bread and butter to put it on. Okay? John understood that there was one coming. After me comes he who is mightier than I, The strap of his sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I am not worthy to be at his feet. The difference in position between he and I is of an infinite nature. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, I would contend this is just my speculation, that the audience isn't really sure what that means. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? They were familiar with the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit worked in a very different way. The Holy Spirit would enter individuals for a time to accomplish a particular task. It would come, and it would go. What John is telling them is that those who are baptized by Jesus will receive the Holy Spirit, and it's not going away. It is not going away. So, I'm here preaching to crowds, is what John is saying. Because there were crowds, remember? All of Judea, all of Jerusalem came out to hear him. We had a discussion about what that meant last week. So crowds were coming, and his message to them was, I am not the center of all of this. I am simply the one preparing the way. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, let's remind ourselves of the introduction that we talked about last week. Mark is writing to a Roman audience. He is not writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Roman audience. And the book of Mark is, first off, much shorter than the other Gospels. And it concentrates on the action. These are the things that happened. He's sitting here talking to a Roman audience I'm going to tell you what Jesus did and we're going to go through this very fast. If you read Matthew, you get a long discussion about Jesus showing up and John saying, no, why would I baptize you? You need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, you baptize me so that I can set an example to the people. For right now, this is what needs to be done. But I told you. Last week, that I'm not just going to go back to Matthew all the time. Because if I was going to do that, I would just teach Matthew, which I just did, right? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) So we're going to look at Mark and we're going to try to follow the tempo of Mark. I actually wanted to get on my running shoes to show you we were going to run through the book of Mark, except for the fact I have no running shoes. (laughs) What can I say? In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So, the people are being baptized. The people are being told to repent and Jesus comes and says, John, by the way, they're related, John, here I am, baptize me. And so he is baptized. Why? Is this significant to Mark? Keep reading. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. What did we say was the task that Mark had set for himself? to demonstrate to us that Jesus is the Son of God. He says that in the first sentence. So here we have God himself telling Jesus, telling, there's a lot of discussion about how many people would have heard this voice, telling John, this is the Son of God. Now, we need to... Back up and just look at one word for one second, though. And when he came out of the water, immediately, immediately, the word immediately is used 41 times in the short book of Mark. I think it's used nine times in chapter one. Once again, Mark is writing to a Roman audience very action-oriented, what he's going to demonstrate to them is the urgency by which Jesus is is doing these actions. It isn't like he's sitting around twiddling his thumbs trying to figure out what God wants him to do. He knows what he needs to do, and he's going to urgently do it. That's the tempo Of the book of Mark. So, as we read through today's lesson, you will see it repeatedly. In fact, I kind of kept getting annoyed at it. Okay, he did it immediately. Okay, he did something else immediately. But he's trying to demonstrate the urgency by which Jesus fulfilled the task that God had given him. So, He came out of the water, and a dove, well, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of the dove, and God the Father endorsed the ministry of Jesus as distinct from that of John. Now, if we had a long time, and if we weren't Mark we would have a discussion at this point about the fact that here we see the Trinity in action. You know the Trinity, right? God is one God in three persons. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But there is only one God. If you were a good Muslim, you would call the Christians tritheist, because they would say, we believe in three gods, and we don't. There's only one God, but he reveals himself in three persons as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And here in this one verse, we see all three members of the Trinity in work together, two of which on this occasion, or in, are endorsing the third as being the Son of God. So, and when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. Do you see that imagery here? It doesn't just open, it is torn open. It is ripped open open. Because God has something to say and God has something to show. And what he has to say is that this is the Son of God. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is going to be the stamp of God's approval saying, yes, Jesus Christ is my Son, and yes, he's doing what I have asked him to to do. And we're going to see that throughout the book of Mark. The spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And it was with and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I use this to demonstrate last week the conciseness of the book of Mark. Here we have what? Two verses? In Matthew, we have 11 verses, and I think in Luke, we have 12 verses talking about this. But no, I'm not going to do it. I am not going to go over to Matthew and read the 11 verses. But look at the event, because that's what Mark is trying to communicate. This is the event. If you were, you're not, but if you were Jesus and you have been baptized by John and all of a sudden the heavens were torn open. You need a chair? (laughs) The heavens were torn open and Jesus, I mean, and God himself said, you are the son of God. Here's one. Don. <laughs> you are the son of God. This would kind of be a big deal, right? If you were going to talk about mountaintop experiences in your life, this is kind of the perfect example. God just said, you are the Son of God, and I am well pleased with what you're doing. We talk about mountaintop experiences. We're going to have the mountaintop experience later in the book. Remember, with Elijah and Moses show up and all of that stuff. So, in Jesus' human life, this is kind of a big deal. What happens after a mountaintop experience oftentimes oftentimes there is a large decline remember elijah he wipes out the prophets of baal i mean this is really a big deal and then jezebel says i'm going to kill you and he goes running into the desert in a fit of depression that God has to kind of talk him out of. So here is Jesus at the peak experience and the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit commands him. Don't think about that too much. The Holy Spirit Drives him away from the crowds out into the wilderness. Why? Why? Why is he going out there? Well, we know what's going to happen. He's going to be tempted by Satan. There is this bizarre verse in Hebrews that we talked about at length because it's an important verse where we are told that Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And you and I are sitting here going, wait, wait, he's the son of God. Why does he have to learn anything? I have a lot to learn. My three-year-old grandson has a lot to learn. What does Jesus have to learn and at the time when we were working through the verse in hebrews we talked about the fact that we remember jesus is fully god and he is fully human that's weird but that's what the bible teaches us what that means is he has all the needs desires of a human being and guess what just like you And me, his flesh, his humanity had to be disciplined so that he would learn that that humanity would not drive his mission in life, but rather he would allow God to drive his mission in life. So the flesh had to be subjected to the desires of God. So God, the Holy Spirit, drove him into the wilderness so that he could learn obedience. Now, the devil shows up. Now, it's interesting the way this plays out. Remember, we're not going over to Matthew. We're not going to do that. But if you read the Matthew account, and if you read the Luke account, the image you get is there's 40 days of fasting, and at the end of the 40 days, he's hungry, duh, and at that point, Satan shows up and says, hey, you want a burger? You want some fries? It's a loose translation. But what does this passage tell us? The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. I have this image. You know, Jesus goes out into the wilderness. And this is a pretty desolate place, okay? You know, you you leave Amarillo and you... (laughs) head toward New Mexico. You've been on that road. There's scrub brushes. There's just not a whole lot there. You leave Clayton, and you're going to Raton, and there's nothing out there. It's the wilderness. This is worse, but it's in the same ballpark. And you're Jesus, and you walk out there, and you sit on a rock. And you start thinking, what does God want me to do? How am I going to accomplish God's purpose? I wonder what's for lunch. I wonder what God wants me to do. And I envision Satan coming up and go, you know what? Don't believe any of that stuff that just happened. Satan, go away. The next day, he's a little bit hungrier. And Satan talks to him a little bit more. The next day, he's a little bit hungrier, and Satan talks, and this goes on. You see, it's not just, for 40 days I fast, and then I've got this hour-long battle with Satan. No, it's 40 days of temptation. At any point in this 40 days, he could have, in fact, turned that rock into a cheeseburger. He could have done that. And guess what? Nobody would have known. Nobody. At any point, he had he could have given in to his fleshly desires and fulfilled his physical needs. Why not? Nobody would know. This is more than just an hour at the end of a 40-day period of temptation. This is Satan whispering in his ear, just kind of telling him a little bit of lie, just a little bit more. Satan only had one desire, and that was to get Jesus to do one thing, whatever it was, apart from the will of the Father. Why? Because if Jesus had done one thing apart from the will of the Father, he would not have been the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews tells us Jesus was tempted just like you and I are, yet he never sinned. In his human nature, he was tempted just like you and I are every day. I have always contended that his was worse. Why? Because if you're like me, you get tempted a little bit, and pretty soon it's easier just to give in to the temptation, ask for forgiveness, and start over again. What that means is that there's some temptations we never really get to the end of. Jesus got to the end of every temptation. The desire of the flesh, food. The desire for power, I'll give you all these kingdoms. The desire to test God. He got to the end of every one of those temptations and he said no to Satan. Thus, demonstrating that we too can do that and demonstrating that he is the perfect sacrifice for our sin. But we're not going to go look at Matthew. Being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The angels showed up and provided him with his needs. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, that's a very quick phrase of, what, five words. Now, after John was arrested, we will see in chapter 6 what happens to John. Remember, John had one mission. John's mission was to prepare the way. And then he is going to be removed from the show just to jump ahead a little bit, he gets in trouble with Herod because Herod had stolen his brother's wife. And John had made it known that that was not a good thing to do. Like, you can't do that. So Herod had John arrested and locked up. The problem was Herod was scared to death of John. Okay. You go why? He's sitting there eating locusts and you're the king because John was telling the truth and the people knew it. Go figure. So, we will cover the rest of that story later. Suffice it to say John is going to get his head chopped off. That comes later. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled. What time is that? You go back to the Old Testament, well, the whole Old Testament, but let's just talk about the prophets. The prophets have been prophesying about the coming of the Messiah over and over. Isaiah says this. This prophet says that. This prophet says something else. The Messiah is coming. And Jesus said, that time is now being fulfilled. There are other scriptures that tell us, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. This is the time that all those prophets had been talking about. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, what in the world is the kingdom of God? We'll have more discussions about this as we work our way through the book of Mark. But suffice it to say at this point that a kingdom requires what? A king. There is a king who rules over a kingdom. Now, there is a sense in which God has always ruled over this earth. Okay? But we see in what um, the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now, once again, there is the sense in which God's will is going to be done. But what the prayer is asking and what the kingdom that is at hand is telling us is that God's influence, his power in your life is imminent. It is here, now, or it's near at hand. What God, through John, to Jesus, is telling you and me is that we need to acknowledge the fact that we live in the kingdom of God, that God does have the power and authority to tell us how to live our lives. This is hard, by the way, for you and me, because you and I have no concept of living under a king. I don't want to have any context of living under a king. I have no desire to live under a king. But what that often means is we begin to treat God as just kind of, well, he's an elected official, We can badmouth him when we want to, or we can follow him if we want to. No. He is the king. He has the right and the authority to tell us how we ought to live our lives. More about that in just a moment. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's an interesting phrase, because if you and I are talking about the gospel, we know what we're talking about. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose on the third day. He has paid the penalty, and we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we are saved not because of our works, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is just starting here. What he's asking them to do is to believe in the good news that I am here to proclaim, that I am bringing about. Believe it, even though at this point you can't see it. What did verse 1 tell us? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are to repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn away from your sin. It's pretty simple. You're walking this way, and you repent, and you turn and walk the other way. I am living in this sin, that sin, this sin, and I repent, and I follow after Jesus. That's what we're called to do. Why do I do that? Because the time is right, and because the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's what he's calling them to do. Now, an aside, just to help your brain explode a little bit. If you read the doctrinal statement of our church, you will see this brief sentence about repentance and salvation. Because if you believe that repentance is a work that you accomplish... I'm going to sit here in this chair, and I'm going to feel sorry for my sins, and I'm going to do it on my own strength, and when I do it hard enough and sincere enough, God will forgive me. What you're saying is that repentance itself becomes a work. Repentance is our response to God moving in our heart and showing us the sinfulness of our sin. God, the Holy Spirit, has to move before we ever decide that, yes, I'm not doing what God wants me to do. So repentance is not a work that somehow is independent of God. It's not a thing that I do independent of God to earn my right to be saved. It is a response to to the movement of God in my life. So, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, there's that word again, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, this is John the Apostle, not the other John that we just talked about, John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets, and immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and follow him. You're sitting there, standing there, walking there, Doing whatever it is you do, you are living your life. You are doing your work. And this guy walks up. And he says, follow me. And you drop everything you're doing and you go and follow him. Why would you do that? Would you do that? We'll see later in the Gospels a group of people who wouldn't do that. Wait a minute, I've got to go bury my father first. Oh, I've got to go take care of my this or that or something else. They dropped their nets. This is their livelihood. This is not just some old guys out fishing on the weekends for fun. This is their livelihood, and they drop it because Jesus said, follow me. They are in the boat with their father, and Jesus says, follow me, and they leave their relationships to follow after Jesus. Why would they do that? I know the answer because God just spoke to them. I believe there is something about Jesus. We're going to see this in just a moment if we don't run out of time. That when he spoke People understood the authority with which he spoke. Unless your heart was so hardened that you were going to refuse any word of God in your life. And we're going to see those people, we're going to see those people in this book. Unless your heart was so hardened that God could not, eh, don't use the word could, that his word is not going to penetrate your hardened heart. They understood when God was speaking to them in the person of Jesus, the Christ. And that's amazing to me. Because you know what? You and I hear lots of voices. We have radio and television and the internet and mail and friends and family telling us to do this and that and no, you can't go that way, go this way. We have all of these noises in our lives and up walks Jesus and he says, follow me. Remember Abraham? We talked about him last week. God says, go. And I'll tell you when you get to wherever it is you're going. Why did Abraham do that? Well, the scripture tells us, by faith, Abraham, when told to go, got up and went. Why did Simon Andrew James and John, why did they go? By faith, they had heard the word of God. Drop what you're doing. I know you're a fisherman. I know that is your livelihood. I know it's your family's livelihood. Forget that. I am going to give you a bigger job. I am going to make you fishers of men. What does that mean? It means that I'm going to send you out there to bring people into the kingdom of God that is at hand. What am I going to do? I'm going to tell people the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, and that's what I'm going to allow you to participate in. You know... Sometimes we act as if God is holding a gun to our head and forcing us to participate in the kingdom of God. Instead of acknowledging and recognizing that, in fact, God is allowing James, Simon, Andrew, and John to participate. This is one of the great mysteries to me. Why does God, why does Jesus call these 12 misfits to be his disciples? Couldn't Jesus have done it on his own? Yes, he could have. But for some reason, he chose to use people like you and me to spread the word of his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that phenomenal that we are allowed to participate? But you know what? Sometimes there's too many voices that drive out the simple command to follow me. They heard the word and they followed him. A couple more verses and we'll be done. And they went into Capernaum. Capernaum is at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And immediately on the Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This is not that odd. The synagogue was, remember, the synagogue is not the temple. The synagogue is not a place of sacrifices. It is a place of teaching. They had the scrolls there. They had um, the, the men, the men would get together, And somebody would stand up and teach. So if you were a teacher who wandered around, and there were such people, you would show up at the synagogue on the Sabbath, you'd pick up a scroll, or they'd hand you a scroll, and you would begin to teach them. That's not that odd. That's what Jesus did. "'On the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching.' For he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The scribes are the official smart people. They're the people over here who have trained themselves in the Old Testament law and in the interpretation of it that the community had put together. Jesus, on the other hand, starts talking and the people go, wow, He has an authority. Where does that authority come from? Remember, back to Matthew. I wasn't going to do that, right? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says the people were amazed because he spoke as one who had authority. Now, let's be very clear in this class. I am not the authority. The only reason I can stand up here at all is because of the authority of the Word of God. If I ever say something that smells wrong with regard to the Bible, you need to call me out on it. You need to call somebody. Because you see, I am not the authority. God is the authority, and God has given us the Word of God, and that is the authority that we have today. But once again, do we recognize that authority? Do we acknowledge the fact that God is the sovereign, that He has the right to tell us what to do, and then do we follow it? Can you imagine sitting in this synagogue in Capernaum, middle of nowhere, northern end of the Sea of Galilee, and every week you hear some dry, dull teacher who comes and talks about something else out of the Old Testament, (sighs) and all of a sudden Jesus walks in, and you start listening to him, and you look around, and you go, this guy's different. This guy is speaking as if he were there when the world was created. And guess what? He was. And then there's this weird response. There's a guy sitting in the room who happens to be filled with a demon. That's next week's lesson. (laughs) Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his authority. Thank you, Lord, that we too are called, that we too are allowed to follow him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.